Hi, you're listening to the Professional Speaks podcast with me, Craig McKellar, your host. As an ex-Big Four auditor for six years, I now run a specialist recruitment consultancy called McKellar Consulting. Throughout this podcast, I speak to senior leaders from the professional services community, past, present and future. These leaders work in accounting and finance, audit, tax, corporate finance, consulting, legal and investments. In the comfort of their own office, I will be posing questions to our guests to gain insights from them across a variety of topics, including balancing work and life, mental health and mindset, risk-taking and effective leadership. These insights will help us learn, be inspired, grow and ultimately succeed in what we want to achieve in our careers. Here's what's coming up on today's episode. And in different ways, isolating. So... Mm. um, I worked for a company called BBA Aviation on a, on a contract about 10 years ago, roughly. Um, great role working um, across the world, um, predominantly North America and Europe. Um, did a lot of travel to North America, usually on my own. Mm. So quite often working as part of a team, but you didn't meet up with the team until you got there. So, mm-hmm. you know, you're doing long haul flights on your own, that kind of thing. Mm. Quite often in the hotel on your own at night. And the way I looked at it was every audit was a different experience and you have to reset, basically. You know, you take each one as it comes. You take what you get from it. So, for example, travelling to a new place, you're getting to see a new place, take that as a positive. You're getting to work with new people and learn new ideas, take that as a positive. You're getting to see a new part of a business, take that as a positive. So, yes, there were some negatives in terms of being on your own, but I always compartmentalised it and said, this is a job for two weeks or three weeks, Mm -hmm. and then I'm back home, Mm -hmm. friends, family, chance to reset and then go again another week or two. Today I am joined by Colin Halden, Head of Internal Audit at LV. After starting his career in external audit and qualifying as a chartered accountant, Colin transitioned into internal audit. In today's episode, we discuss topics that include working in the internal audit profession, having personal resilience and mentorship. No, Colin, thank you very much for, for joining us. Um, you're our first internal audit um, guest or candidate, <laughs> not candidate, guest on uh, this podcast. So it's great to have you. Thanks. Thanks for inviting me. Great. Um, and for listeners and viewers who maybe haven't come across you before, you are currently head of internal audit at LV, um, right. large insurance company. You're also Scott or chair of the Scottish region of Institute of Internal Auditors yep, that's right. and a mentor for ICAS. So quite a few things um, and we'll, we'll dive into some of that as we as we um, progress in, in this chat. Um, just kind of starting off with your career, um, I know that most of your career has kind of been outside of professional services, but you did start yeah. in professional services and qualified mm-hmm. as an accountant and then you were back in, uh, I think, a, top, a large top 10 mm-hmm. firm later on. So I kind of wanted to ask, you know, how did um, working in external audit, um, which is how your career began, how did working in external audit help you make that move into internal audit? Well, I worked at, it was PwC I trained with, mm-hmm. and um, you get a great grounding there. You know, they, they, they kind of throw you in at the deep end. You learn to kind of stand on your own two feet fairly quickly. Um, but in terms of skill sets that are transferable, um, you learn that you have to be quite resilient yeah. Because you can quite often work long hours, you can mm. quite often have to juggle <clears throat> jobs at the same time yeah. in different phases, whether it be writing a report for one, planning the next, or just in the middle of, of field work on a particular external audit. You also have to be quite agile because you jump from different clients, 
you know, you, you can be on, for example, manufacturing client one week, mm. utilities client the next week, and then two weeks in financial services after that, and yeah. you just have to constantly readjust. So you need to be quite versatile, quite flexible, quite agile. And I think there's also a real importance in quality of, of what you do mm. in terms of documentation, evidence to support what you've done, um, real kind of judgmental thinking and, and how to put that down on, on, on paper. So I think those are, are the real transferable skills that I picked up during my time at PwC. Great. And I guess, you know, in external audit, you also maybe work with a lot of different teams as well. Sure. Um, and is that the same when you're an internal audit? So it depends on the size of your internal audit function, really. Mm. Um, in the past, I've worked for bigger internal audit functions. So, for example, when I was at Royal Bank of Scotland, um, we had about 80 people uh, in, in Edinburgh, where, where I was based. We had about 250 to 300 globally. Mm-hmm. And occasionally you would deal with people outside of, of the Edinburgh office on audits, which covered London or, or covered slightly further afield. Um, in the current team I'm in, it's much smaller. Um, so there's nine of us all told. Uh, and below the the senior leadership team level, which I'm at, we've we've only actually got kind of five auditors. Um, so it's it's one core team here, um, uh-huh. but that works well because you get to know people and yeah. you get to know what what they're good at, what they're not so good at, how they can complement each other. In the bigger teams, what's really good is you just get a lot of different types of thinking that you can leverage off of, and and you do learn quite a lot from different people who've got different experiences. Okay, so you've worked for a variety of different firms in their internal audit functions. So what's the difference, would you say, of working in internal audit in professional services and working for you know a firm that's not professional services? Sure. Um, I would say in professional services, <clears throat> I think what's, what's quite interesting is um, the fact that, you know, depending on what organisation you're working for, you can work in different teams very regularly, mm-hmm. um, you know, so it could be every job you work with different people. Um, there's usually a lot more time pressure um, in terms of delivering the audit. So not unusual to have to deliver an audit in a week, a week and a half. Mm-hmm. And usually two to three weeks is about the top end of, of how long you'll get to do it. Whereas uh, in industry, you can, you can carry out audits that last up to 10, 12 weeks, depending on the size well. of your scope. Okay. Um, you also have a scenario where um, the client expects you to deliver a quality output regardless of what happens. Mm. Um, you don't have a lot of flexibility in terms of uh, when you deliver it by quite often because mm-hmm. the client needs their, their report. Um, in industry, there's usually a bit more flexibility. You know, you might set a date of complete by the end of March, but in reality, it overruns by two or three weeks. Okay. It's not always the end of the world unless it's a real business critical audit where mm-hmm. they need a, a view on something by a certain period of time. Um and I think the other thing about working in, in industry is that getting to know your team and the relationships of the business. Mm-hmm. You establish those um, because you're regularly interacting with the same people. But when you're constantly chopping and changing between client and between teams, it takes a bit longer to build mm-hmm. that up. Mm-hmm. Um, and relationships is one of the key, thing in, key, key things in internal audit, really, because that helps you get information easier. Mm-hmm. It helps you land findings easier. Um, also just the kind of general learning on, on, on the job of what a particular team does or a particular business area does becomes so much easier as well. And how do you, you know, build on those or build those relationships? You know, is it, is it simply just sitting down with a person and, and, and talking or is there other elements? Yeah, I mean, what, what I would say is I've found, you know, try and be as personable as you can. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, everybody is a person. Everybody has a, a life outside of work. 
So, you know, it's that, you know, have a coffee, how was your weekend? Um, you know, how's the family if you know them a bit yeah. better? Yeah. And then moving towards the more work topics gradually and then, you know, what the current issues, mm-hmm. how's business going in, you, in in your business area, what the current challenges, how's that system implementation going, that kind of thing. So can it ease into the work chat, I think, mm-hmm. is always quite helpful. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, some internal authors I, I, I know and have spoken to in the past, you know, some of them can feel that they can be quite isolated in their, their role as well. You know, I've known mm-hmm. people that um, maybe they travel 70% of the time type of thing and, and, and they don't travel with anyone. It's just them, so it can be quite isolating. Have you felt that any of your roles, you know, have... Uh, uh, have been a bit isolating, and, and if so, you know how do you how do you cope with that? Yeah, so I mean, there's there's probably been a couple of obvious um, examples of that, and in different ways, isolating. So mm. um, I worked for a company called BBA Aviation on a, on a contract about ten years ago, roughly. Um, great role, working um, across the world, um, predominantly North America and Europe. Um, did a lot of travel to North America, usually on my own. Mm. So quite often working as part of a team, but you didn't meet up with the team until you got there. So, mm-hmm. you know, you're doing long haul flights on your own, that kind of thing, mm. quite often in the hotel on your own at night. And it, the way I looked at it was every audit was a different experience and you have to reset, basically. You know, you take each one as it comes, you take what you get from it. So, for example, travelling to a new place, you're getting to see a new place, take that as a positive. Yeah. You're getting to work with new people and learn new ideas, take that as a positive. You're getting to see a new part of a business, take that as a positive. So, yes, there were some negatives in, in terms of being on your own, but I always compartmentalised it and said, this is a job for two weeks or three weeks. Mm-hmm. And then I'm back home, mm-hmm. friends, family, chance to reset and then go again another week or two. So it's just about accepting the fact that it's a project, it's a finite period of time in that particular role anyway, two to three weeks and then move on, but take the positives out of quiet time, thinking time, mm. seeing new places, learning new things. So it's that, that's the way I approach that. In terms of isolation in other ways, um, another good example would be um, when I was the head of group internal audit at SMS. And what was isolating about that really is because you're the top person in the department, if there are problems, you don't have lots of people to, you know, chew the fat with them mm. on, um, you know, so... Um, was that a small department? Yeah, yeah. So, so there was myself and, and two other people in the team. So obviously, if there if if there are issues relating to, for example, a particular business area's audit, you know, obviously you can talk about those with the team. Mm-hmm. If there were issues that were more personal to you, and you know how internal audit, for example, was perceived in the business or whatever, um, you can talk to your audit committee chair or, or, or the non-exec directors that are on the audit committee. You can't really talk to the team so much about that, mm. um, and and. Uh, how how I would get around that is I've got lots of of friends and and, and ex colleagues who you know you can talk to them about. Yeah, yeah. Don't tell them all the details, of course, because a lot of that mm-hmm. is is kind of private. But you say you know in this scenario, mm-hmm. I'm thinking about doing X. What do you think about in, mm-hmm. in those scenarios yourself? I, I, and I guess that's where a kind of mentoring angle comes in. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it's good to get different people's perspectives because they're not necessarily going to tell you the right answer. But they'll give you food for thought, and they'll perhaps make you think that a certain uh, direction of travel in your thinking isn't the right one. Mm-hmm. Um, so so that's kind of how I would have dealt with that. But yeah, it can be quite a, a kind of lonely role, it's often mm-hmm. said in internal audit, because you're not really friends with the business either. Yeah. You're supposed to be independent. Yeah. So. And and so I guess, you know, when you are in a role that's isolating, you know, you need a lot of personal resilience as well. 
uh, and you've just mentioned that you know what's helped you has been knowing other people to talk to. We mentioned at the start that you're chair of the, the Scottish region of the Institute of Internal Auditors. Mm-hmm. Has being part of that network also helped you, I guess, have resilience? Yes. Um, so, uh, I mean, I, I, I joined the, the committee in the first instance back in 2018. Um, and at that point, it's just a bit of a kind of learning process of, you know, what's going on, what can I get involved in? And one of the things I did was I set up a, a forum um, called the Practitioners Forum. So basically, it's aimed at people below head of audit level because we also operate various other forums at head of audit level and head of audit and financial services, for example. Um, but this particular forum, you're getting to interact with lots of different professionals from different sectors, mm-hmm. private sector, public sector, some third sector attendees, also different industries and at different levels, whether it be auditor up to probably senior audit manager. Um, and what that does is it gives you lots of viewpoints from people on mm-hmm. different topics because it's a different topic discussion every meeting, that kind of thing. And then the other thing is, um, I've been one of the main organisers of the annual conference for the last um, few years and as a result you're regularly liaising with people to speak mm. and therefore you widen your network that way as well mm-hmm. and a lot of the people we've asked to speak over the last two three years have been quite senior mm-hmm. heads of audit directors of audit um, audit partners those kinds of things um, and you build that relationship there too so all of a sudden you have somebody you can kind of mm-hmm. call upon if you want a bit of advice you know where do I go to get this how would you approach that can you give any recommendations of you know good audit systems or mm-hmm. good professional services firms to work with that kind of thing? Mm-hmm. So, is knowing people to have those conversations with you know can you can you pull on what they're saying to give you then confidence in your job, which then maybe helps with some resilience needed? Absolutely, quite yeah. often it, it reinforces what you're thinking. Mm-hmm. In some cases, though, it does. I think possibly mentioned it earlier. It, it can tell you what not to think or what not to do, mm. you know, because you, you maybe had a certain train of thought and they say, well, if I was in this position, I would look to do this. And it's not it's not that you always need guidance. Um, you know, I've got a lot of experience built up in my career to date, but sometimes there's just get the odd sticky point that you think mm. it'd be good to get a second perspective on this. Mm-hmm. Great. No, good. And you, you kind of mentioned there, you know, you've been in quite a few senior roles. So, I mean, when was the first, or what was the first role that you you maybe thought, you know, this is the most senior leadership role that I've I've been in. And I guess second question to that is, you know, how do you feel that you've equipped yourself or how did you equip yourself to be in that senior leadership role? Sure. Um, so there's probably been kind of three where it's felt most like a kind of true leadership role, I guess. Um, first one was Morgan Stanley Credit Card, which was a good while ago, um, when I kind of stepped into senior manager role when my senior manager moved on. Uh, and it meant that I was effectively head of the team in Scotland, mm-hmm. reporting into to London. Um, and it was really about, you know, scene setting with my line manager, who was the, the, the head of audit specific to the line business we were in. Um, <clears throat> what's my level of authority here? You know, what are my boundaries? What do I need approval from you on? Um, otherwise, you know, I'm a kind of good to go with running it as I a, see a appropriate as long as we deliver the work. So it was sort of setting boundaries. The second one was, on an interim basis, I was covering um, the head of audit area for um, the risk division, the TSB. Mm-hmm. Um, that was another step up because I was part of the senior leadership team then um, in, in internal audit. And basically what that involved was a lot more kind of strategic thinking. So things like recruitment, mm-hmm. uh, team structure, audit systems, how we're going to use them, methodology and how we might tweak it, annual audit planning, 
those kind of discussions and regular meetings as a senior leadership team, which mm-hmm. was basically our chief internal auditor plus all the functional heads of audit. Mm-hmm. So that that was a good experience because I'm getting to, you know, I was getting to, to liaise regularly with people at uh, an experience and senior level. And how, how I took that on was lots of conversations with the people who were in the SLT okay. just to get their perspective on what was expected uh, and what challenges they found coming from that. And then the third leadership role, I would say, which again was slightly different and again a, a further step up would have been the, the overall head of audit at SMS um, and that was a completely different organisation one financial <coughs> services mm-hmm. for the first time in a while um, a smaller organisation that had grown by acquisition mm-hmm. so the mindset of a lot of the people was different from what I would say more natural PLCs mm-hmm. um, so really had to get a lot of people on board quickly speak to the audit committee, my audit committee chair, get their views on what they felt the challenges were, what they needed from me, what they needed from the function. Um, but also speak to all the senior management within the business, find out what was worrying them, what their perspective, what their kind of perception was of internal audit and, and how they would want to be um, treated by internal mm-hmm. audit, how we'd work mm-hmm. with them going forward. So it's really about scene setting um, mm-hmm. and, and getting the buy-in from, from the right people at the right levels. Mm-hmm. I mean, my next question was going to be, you know, kind of what challenges have you faced in your senior leadership? So kind of some of what you've mentioned there is, you know, getting people to buy into maybe something new, a new strategy, a new vision. Yep. Um, would you say, you know, your work as an internal auditor when you're maybe facing off to different senior people, different teams and different locations, you know, what you've learned f- through that has, has helped you, I guess, improve your people skills to mm-hmm. be able to then bring on, I mean, I don't want to just give you the answer here, yeah, but yeah, I'm just, I'm, just, I'm kind of thinking it out myself and is, would that be true? Yeah, so, I mean, it's very much a, you know, relationships and, and, and people type job, mm. You're constantly liaising with different people at different levels, with different areas of responsibility. Um, They've always always got different personalities as well, and and some people like certain approaches, and other people don't. Some people are very personable. Some people are very business like all the time. Mm. Sometimes it's tough to break that down to, to to kind of get in there and and, and establish that relationship. Um, I would say in terms of the main challenges in in the roles, I'll take TSB and SMS specifically. I guess TSB one of the main challenges was bandwidth, because in that particular role, it wasn't quite at the overall leader level where it's predominantly attending meetings and final review. There was a lot more of file review and mm-hmm. regular meetings with um, business uh, area stakeholders mm-hmm. and also the SLT and also trying to develop elements of the, the team, including um, you know personal development of, of team members. So there was a lot of juggling and sometimes the only way to, to deal with that is is by overtime. It's, it's the reality sometimes in professional services and you just have to kind of cope with that. It's either for you or it's not. Um, so my view is if you're going to learn a lot from it, then it's a good thing, mm-hmm. um, as long as it's not obviously constant. Yeah. Um, so, so that 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 was how I dealt with that. At SMS, <coughs> one of the big challenges there really was they had good people in the team, but the structure and the kind of methodology, framework, etc., of the internal audit team was quite loose, mm-hmm. um, quite basic. So, you know, things I had to do were things like bringing in a methodology, bringing in templates, so we would have consistency and guidance. Um, making sure that we had a, a kind of structure to the interactions with the business stakeholders. There was a purpose. Um, it factored then into things like our audit and their annual audit planning. And then on the other side was, in terms of our outputs, some good audit reports, mm-hmm. but quite a hard read, quite lengthy, 
um, maybe didn't get to the point quite quickly enough. So I redesigned the audit reports to make them more concise, sharper, get to the point, easier for the reader, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And yet conversely, despite the long audit reports, there were very, very short audit committee report updates from internal audit. Mm-hmm. And I felt that just didn't give the audit committee the level of information they needed to aid their decision-making to get comfort that internal audit was operating appropriately. So I had to work quite hard on those to get them to the right level of quality. And, and, and that required buy-in from the audit committee chair mm-hmm. and the rest of the audit committee. And then obviously on the other side, with all the sort of changes to process, that required buy-in from the team. Mm-hmm. And that was hard because they were used to doing things a certain way for a period of time before I joined. What, what are the consequences of maybe, you know, people taking a long time to buy in? To, to, to something new, you know, because I'd imagine people do buy in, you know, mm. even if it's reluctantly, but, you you know, maybe they do it at a slower pace. So does that cause kind of a lot of bother for, for you and, and what you're wanting to do so, or the department? I think in terms of what you change within uh, within the team in terms of process and, and the outputs you're creating, etc. cetera, um, sometimes it's just about coaching people, mm. um, not telling them what to do, but explaining the benefits, explaining, you know, there are certain efficiencies to be gained from it, which creates more time for other things or reduces the amount of time it takes to do certain things. Um, And people don't always like change, but I I personally think change is good as long as it's for the right reason. So Mm -hmm. it's just about explaining that. Um, In terms of the audit committee buy-in, that was slightly easier but you still have to explain why you're wanting to change things. And 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 some of that involved a bit of a, you know, sit down with the audit committee chair and, you know, here's here's what we had, here's what I'm proposing to move to and why. Uh-huh. Um, do you feel you need the longer length reports or would you actually prefer something that you can digest quickly but still maintains the same messaging? Uh-huh. Um, so it, it, it's I think it's about talking people through the reasons for why you're doing things. But yeah, it can be a challenge because it's not always a quick win. Uh-huh. And obviously there's been a lot of change in, you know, the corporate world and, and, and different in facets. But in internal audit, you know, you've been a lot of changes of technology, um, with regulation, with, mm-hmm. you know, remote working. Um, it, you know, how have you maybe seen the internal audit landscape change in the last few years and, and what's been challenging about it? So I think there's there's an expectation that internal audit will continue to evolve and continue to deliver but also to bring more to the table, more add value a bit more of a move from providing assurance over how controls are operating to actually some more opinions on kind of best practice, Mm -hmm. advising more on ways to to, to go in in certain processes and controls. You kind of do that as part of uh, your audit reporting because Ultimately, you'll raise an observation and then you'll discuss recommendations for actions that will address whatever you found. But actually, in some ways, they're wanting that advisory work to kind of come before you've completed an audit. Mm-hmm. It's a bit more can come in and take a look and advise us on how we develop this rather than wait until we've developed it and then criticise it, mm-hmm. which is which is quite often what it feels like to them. Mm-hmm. And I think also sometimes businesses kind of see it as an opportunity to get some free consulting mm-hmm. rather than going to professional services right away. They see that they've got an in-house resource. So I think that's one thing. <coughs> I think there's other changes, I would say, that are probably more directly impacting on the internal audit teams, which are 
data analytics is the big thing. Everybody's uh, interested in using data analytics because they can use it to focus mm-hmm. how they shape their audit mm-hmm. um, by reviewing documentation during the planning and interrogating that, working out where the biggest risks are. Using data analytics during field work to no longer just sample tests. So, for example, if you had, for example, uh, an audit of complaint handling and you had uh, a spreadsheet that had 50,000 complaints for the year, if you're going to manually test that, you can only pick a sample because it takes mm-hmm, so long mm-hmm. to do. Uh, if, however, you've got good data analytics capability and the right tools, you can interrogate the entire population. And the weight of any observations you find <clears throat> when it's a population of 50,000 mm-hmm. versus a sample of 50, uh, you yeah. know, it's, it's, a, it's a far more <clears throat> credible um, message that you, you provide and the business can really you know buy into the severity of it. Um, and then in reporting, data analytics can also be used in in uh, the, the outputs that you have in the report. You know things like producing tables and graphs and that kind of mm-hmm, thing, which yeah. again just give a bit more clarity on what you've done and what you found. But then obviously the big kind of almost elephant in the room these days is AI, and yeah. and it's <laughs> it's growing at such a, a rate you see it anywhere everywhere, whether it be fun apps, whether it be used in business. There's a couple of angles to that for internal audit. So one is um, how it uses AI. Um, so, for example, we could use AI to research during the planning phase of an audit, whether that be just to, to get general knowledge on something or whether it be to actually think about forming first ideas and what the risks are in a particular type of area, what controls might look like in that area, mm-hmm. and even early versions of test plans. Mm-hmm. What you have to be careful with, though, is however you do that, you have to make sure that you sense check it because in a lot of cases, AI is only as good as what, it's like many systems, what, yeah. what goes in has to be good for what comes out. To be good. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Mm-hmm. So you need to absolutely sense-check these things. But then there's also the challenge of, as businesses start to use AI, it's how do you audit it? And and the reality is, you might not know how to audit it. So mm. you might be able to do it to a certain extent, but then you might have to put professional services firms in because they have more technical expertise to deal with that and they've Mm -hmm. done it on other clients. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think those are the the kind of big challenges going forward for for internal audit. Budget is obviously the other one because there's always a pressure on budgets, particularly in in, in the current environment. So so challenges in internal audit, technology, budget and and other things that you've just mentioned. People, personnel, you know, has that been a challenge at all in internal audit over over the last few years? You know, it's been well documented that it's been a challenge in talent for mm-hmm. for different industries. Is that the same in internal audit, or do you feel that there's quite a lot of you know good professionals out there? So it can it can be, um, mm-hmm. and sometimes that's dependent on factors such as basic things like what are you paying? Yeah. You know? mm-hmm. So really big organisations quite often can afford to you know offer better salaries and, and, and better overall packages, whether it be pension, private health insurance, bigger bonuses, whatever it might be. So it depends on what the candidates are looking for. So if the candidates are looking for experience in a certain type of organisation, they want to work in that organisation regardless, within, within limits, of mm-hmm, course. Mm-hmm. They don't, don't want to be poorly paid. But equally, there will be other people who are very much focused on, I'm quite happy to put in the hardest slog possible to get the most money possible mm. um, and, and, and get up the, the ladder uh, in terms of promotion as quickly as possible. And everybody has different needs, so that, that, that does vary. Also depends on location as well. So, um, you know, if I took, for example, LV, where I work at the moment, you know, we're, our head office is based in Bournemouth. Um, mm-hmm. So we're not a million miles away from London and we're not a million miles away from Bristol. 
and there are probably a lot more opportunities both sides and obviously with um, the opportunity to either work fully remotely or work on a hybrid basis then people can work in London but live in Bournemouth or Southampton mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. Portsmouth mm-hmm. or somewhere close to Bournemouth so they don't have to work in that local office um, so in terms of getting quality candidates uh, it's not always easy mm-hmm. um, you know if, if, if I was recruiting in Edinburgh you know I could get 100 applicants for a job mm. if I recruit in Bournemouth it's not, it's not reflective of LV, but it's reflective <coughs> of the other opportunities that are close by and, you know, the, the big paying opportunities that you'll get, for example, in London. You know, I may get 20 candidates and, and they might be 20 great candidates and so you don't have a problem, but yeah. sometimes it might be that you've got five great candidates mm-hmm. and you have to mm-hmm. interview them all, you know. it's it, So it, it does vary. I think there is a bit of a challenge. I think the other challenge is, back in the day, it used to be qualified chartered accountants quite often moved into internal audit. Now, I'm not sure if that's still the case because I'm not as close to that anymore. But there was always a big push by agencies for people to move into finance rather than internal audit. And I remember being asked, why do you want to work in internal audit? And it's because I like the idea of the challenge, the problem solving, the variety. Um, And I would be told, but this finance role pays more. Mm. But it's not all about the money for me. Mm -hmm. It's about the you know, enjoying what I do and, and, and the value add that I can bring. I have to say, I, I feel that sometimes internal is o- internal audit is overlooked. Mm-hmm. Sometimes a bit like external audit. I think people think, um, you know, if they've done it for a few years, maybe it's not going to change much. But actually, you can build a fantastic career out of it. And you, you end up being in uh, a, or on a path that's maybe a bit more niche than than finance and you, then therefore you've got maybe more opportunities to get into interesting senior roles because internal audit you know is such an important function in a, in a, in a business um, and I think people do overlook that I know I've seen people you know get to really senior levels in internal audit and that's helped them then get onto you know board committees or mm-hmm. it's helped them get into more more senior roles in their organisation so you know if you're selling it to people listening to this would you agree with that yeah yeah absolutely i mean one of the things that you can you can never underestimate is the breadth of knowledge you get working in internal audit so um if for example i took and this is going back a while but my first role in internal audit morgan stanley credit card back then there was very much a cyclical approach to what you audited so you would have like a full list of potential audits which you would call an audit universe and you would look to audit everything that was on there across a four-year cycle um and when you did that as a result, you audited the whole business. Mm. You know, so I would I would have audited risk, finance, marketing, customer services, new accounts, different products, fraud, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That builds up a massive amount of knowledge of how things work in a business, which a lot of people don't get insight to. That also the types of documentation and things that you see, you're privy to a lot of things that people below exec level generally don't see mm-hmm. um, unless they work in that particular area. So I think um, it builds that breadth of knowledge and that stands in great stead for moving on to other roles within businesses. Mm-hmm. And interestingly as well, you know, you've used your internal audit experience career to do mentorship as well. Mm-hmm. And so kind of just coming on to that, um, I didn't mention at the start that um, you did a short stint of the Scottish Football Association as a mentor as well um, as your your um, role for ICAS. Mm-hmm. Can you maybe just talk a bit about the short stint at the SFA because it's very different and um, you know what what were you doing there and, and kind of what did you learn from it as well sure um so basically um the sfe has accreditations for football clubs at all levels um and basically uh, it was it was through my time at grant thornton and, and they had a kind of partnership with the sfe 
um, where they were looking for people to volunteer as business mentors and you would be allocated to the club. So I was allocated to the club in youth football. Um, and essentially it was about improving the governance, the processes. You've got things like safeguarding, obviously, of children. You've got things like how they run their meetings, how they budget, um, how they consider business plans for, for example, if they wanted to buy their own pitch or yeah. new floodlights or whatever it might be. So a lot of what I was doing was kind of advising in terms of what good governance looks like and, and what good business planning could look like. Um, the challenge you have there is a lot of the people who work, if you take youth football as an example, if it's not youth football affiliated to, for example, a professional club, mm. there's a lot of volunteers, there's a lot of people with day jobs. Um, and not all the people you deal with are people with a kind of business background. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the time you really have to explain it in, in layman's terms. And the way I did it was, you know, you're not talking down to people by any stretch of the imagination. But what you're just doing is you're explaining this is why you should do this. This is why it's a good thing, you know, to have this kind of structure in place. Here are the benefits you can get from it. And talking through some examples of of if you do this, this will happen. If you don't do this, this could happen, mm-hmm. etc. And, and it's just really a bit split. And it's a bit like, to be honest, any job. If you're if you're dealing with somebody new who doesn't know something, whether that's somebody who's been recruited to your team, or if you're auditing an area or whatever it might be, quite often you do have to set the scene, explain, give examples, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. So I took that same approach, and it seemed seemed to work quite well. I built up quite a good relationship with the the, the people who were involved in the football club from from an early stage. Um, and uh, and I think I added value in that way. To be to be honest, um, the the difference with my mentoring at ICAS yep. was it was pretty much professionals that you were dealing with. Um, you know, it was either people who were training mm-hmm. or were newly qualified or relatively early in their career. Um, and I think the key thing you need to think about in, in terms of mentoring in that scenario is you don't tell people the answer. You don't tell people what to do. You can coach them. You can advise them. You ask them things like, "Do you have a particular problem you want you want help with? Is there a situation you're not sure about?" And, and you let them talk. You have to listen actively and come up with a kind of balanced response. Offer a range of solutions. One of the things that I really think people benefit from in mentoring is learning what not to do. Mm. So actually, a mm-hmm. lot of the illustrative things that I have have delivered as part of mentoring through ICAS have been. I had a scenario where I had option X or option Y and I picked option X and it was the wrong one. Mm. And here's why. And here's the impact it had. So it's not to say don't do that. If you really want to do that, you do that. But just, you know, I'm, I'm kind of giving you that that kind of warning that it didn't work for me and here's why. So just be very careful when you think about it. But what I would never do in a mentoring scenario is direct people to do things. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, it's their career and the impact it can then have on their lives, you know, in terms of personal life and professional life. So it's just really about providing guidance and help um, and, and, and advice where you can. And getting involved in the FSFA um, mentor role, mm-hmm. would you say it's best to kind of do a role like that once you're quite experienced in you know, your, mm-hmm. your career rather than to go in maybe at a more junior end? I think it depends on what you've got to offer mm-hmm. um, because people can become technically very good at a subject at fairly uh, early stage in their career. Um, I've, you know, so I also mentioned earlier that I trained at PwC and I later went back and worked for Grant Thornton Professional Services. And you would quite often have people um, within the firm who could be sitting at assistant manager level, mm-hmm. maybe manager level, so not senior roles particularly, but they could be very, very knowledgeable about that particular area that they worked in because they lived and breathed it for yeah. three, four years. 
So I don't think it's always the case that you should you should say people should only be very senior. It's a bit like my feeling about boards generally. You know, you tend to see the composition of boards is predominantly people who are, you know, often mid fifties upwards. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think we need to get younger people into boards. Yep. Um, and you know, I think once <coughs> once you hit kind of mid thirties, if you've got decent experience, there's really no reason why not. It's just about coaching people in, in, in how they have to approach that kind of role and, and what they can do and what they can't do. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think it's too easy to just say, here's the person with a 35, 40-year career who's got lots to offer, but actually people with a 20-year career and a 10-year career have got lots to offer too. So I, I think it varies. Absolutely. And in your, and then just, you know, as a mentor, ICAS, um, so you mentioned it, most of the people that you're a mentor to, are they quit early on in their career? Um, so I tend to take one at a time just from the, the point of view of the capacity that yep. I've got in terms of yeah. day job and personal life and, yep. and, and obviously my IIA involvement. Um, so ev- everybody that I've had has been kind of different. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I had somebody who was um, a bit more of a kind of uh, technical analyst type type chap. Uh, I had a lady who was working in a finance team, working predominantly on, on kind of project work. Okay. Um, and I had one other person who was a kind of fairly straightforward accountant, but I would say they were all relatively junior. Um, I think the most experience was maybe three years post-qualified, mm-hmm. um, and I think one chap was doing his exams, but he'd actually come in uh, not through the usual kind of route of I'm okay. going to study ICAS or whatever, yep. he'd just come in as a, a kind of low-level trainee and had then started doing mm-hmm. exams because mm-hmm. he worked in a smaller firm. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, generally less experienced people. I think it's rare you would get somebody who's very experienced who would want a mentor yep. um, un- at, at this kind of level unless it was to learn about the subject matter specifically. So maybe somebody who didn't have an internal audit background wanted to move in there might think about it if they were mm-hmm. doing a career change. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't have thought an experienced finance professional would want a similarly experienced internal audit professional mm-hmm. as a mentor, generally. Yeah, yeah. no, I guess, I guess if somebody's got to that level, they may have got a mentor previously that they keep in touch with as, yes. as they progress and get some advice from. Exactly. Mentoring can be very informal. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, A lot of people will receive mentoring advice without really thinking it's mentoring advice and they'll give it without thinking it's mentoring yeah. advice they're giving. So Yeah. Great. No, good. And just as we, you know, come, come to the end of this as, as, as well, um, I do like to ask um, people that come onto the podcast, oh, if you think about the next 12 months, you know, mm-hmm. have you got any goals you'd like to achieve professionally or personally or or both sure um so i would say i'll take the professional one first um uh, i've recently recently been invited to join the the lv wide senior leadership team brilliant so effectively that's the you know the kind of c-suite people and their direct reports um so i've not attended my first meeting yet mm-hmm. but i'm looking forward to it mm-hmm. it'll be interesting to hear the discussions that go on and uh, maybe get a bit more insight to how some people tick you know uh, that that will definitely help me yeah. with um, how I interact with business areas going forward for our audit work and also help our, our audit planning processes um, but my aim within 12 months would be to hopefully be able to contribute and add some value to that meeting mm-hmm. um, obviously initially it's just about getting to see how it works but within 12 months I'd want to be actively contributing mm-hmm. at that meeting where I can Sounds, that sounds very interesting, yeah. So that's professional. Mm-hmm. Personal, um, in the past I've done creative writing um, and I've kind of paused it for a fair while now. I, I, I did a bit, a bit maybe 10-ish years ago um, and then I did some more during lockdown initially just mm-hmm. for something to do yeah. as a kind of hobby. Yeah. So I'd like to get back into that and actually maybe try and get the outputs of that 
out somewhere to a wider audience. Um, Go for it. That would be my uh, advice. <laughs> yeah, so um, it's just finding the time, obviously, the balance between professional and personal life and then t- time-consuming hobbies in between. But yeah, that, that, that would be my personal goal. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for coming on and, and giving me your, your time. I know no you're, problem you're, at all. You're busy, so no, thanks very much. That's great. Thanks very much for your time. Thanks, Colin. Thank you for listening to the Professional Speaks podcast. Remember, you can watch the episode recording on our YouTube channel. And if you can, please do subscribe and share with all of your friends. The more people who listen to this, the more guests we can have on to share so that you can learn, be inspired, grow, and ultimately succeed in what you want to achieve in your career. Please also contact me if you have any feedback on this episode. I'd love to hear from you.